Now we're joined by the experts at Vetify, a new data analytics and thought leadership company that is transforming financial services from an industry to a community, one relationship at a time. There's a couple of different ways to slice and dice these various ETFs. They can hold what are called total return swaps. Expect the unexpected. Laura, welcome back to the uh, podcast. Thank you so much for having me today. Okay, so let's start with uh, ARK Invest and Kathy Wood. And you just heard me there at the top give those asset numbers where ARK has gone from $60 billion to less than $11 billion in about two and a half years. And I, I do think there are several paths we can head down here, but l- let's just start higher level. I'd love to have you give us your current assessment on the state uh, or health of ARK's ETF business, which is now nine years old, by the way. That, that's kind of hard to believe. But just high level, how do you view ARC at the moment? Yeah, they, they've had kind of a rough year and a half, haven't they, right? Um, so to put it in perspective, ARC is still among the top 20 ETF issuers with the highest revenue. They're still bringing in an estimated $80 million, uh, on their ETFs. They only have eight of them. So, you know, lots of other ETF issuers would love to be where ARC is right now, but it's hard not to compare them to where they once were, right? So at one point, they were in the top five of ETF issuer revenues, and now they're down to 18. So much further down on the leaderboard there. And a a lot of that fall from grace, so to speak, has to do with some pretty awful performance in their flagship funds. Uh, ARKK is down 8% over the past year. ARKG is down 32% and so on and so forth. So but I I think nothing is really more telling than what's happened to them in, in 2023, where we've seen some genuinely disruptive technology emerge in the form of artificial intelligence. And and this was a disruptive trend that Kathy and, and her team identified as a force that was going to be important nine years ago when they launched their autonomous tech and robotics ETF, that's ticker uh, ARCQ. Yet ARCQ is down 1% over the past 12 months compared to the broad tech sector ETF, that's XLK, that's up 27%. So if ARC was able to accurately predict this trend that AI was going to take over the world, why weren't they able to capitalize on it, right? So something's not working here. And from what I see, ARC still has their diehard stalwarts, but you know, your average investor, your average retail or, or uh, you know, financial advisor investor is kind of disillusioned with them. That's a great point on um, the AI and and maybe not fully capitalizing on the performance here. We had the AI mania earlier this year. But if we take a step back, and maybe we can can come back to AI here in a moment, just higher level, and you hit on this, clearly a lot of ARC's asset declines have been market-driven. You you mentioned an ETF like uh, ARKK, the ARC Innovation ETF. I went back and looked. That's down nearly... 80%, 80% 80%, 80% from its mm. February 2021 peak. Now, I, I've said before, um, look, say what you want about ARK and Kathy Wood, but the one thing that they have done is they've stuck to their knitting in that you know exactly what you're getting from their ETFs, for better or worse, right? You know that you're going to get, quote, unquote, uh, disruptive tech exposure. My question for you is, is that still a thing? Do, do investors still want that type of exposure? Or was that sort of a byproduct of the uh, frothy market environment of 2020 and in, in 2021? It's a good question. And I think you you 
pin the the tail on the donkey there by saying that they um, stuck to their knitting and that essentially just knitting a crypto sweater over the past two years, it's been uh, largely uh, that that asset decline or that that um, you know poor performance has been tied to Ark's exposure to Bitcoin, not just you know, Bitcoin directly, but also you know the associated stocks like Coinbase and I guess even Tesla to an extent. They've maintained that conviction uh, even through the downside in crypto, and that dragged down their performance. Um, but look, Ark pioneered the disruptive tech concept and for a long time. I think they did it better than anybody else, but that success was also uh, in part their downfall because it spawned copycatters that watered down the idea, right? So fund companies who were saying uh, stocks like Apple and Meta are disruptive tech companies, which I guess, sure, you can make the argument that they're leaders in the space, but can a market leader actually also be the market disruptor too, you know? So I think ARK uh, got caught up in uh, essentially a disruptive washing of the market, right? We talk a lot about greenwashing impacting flows into ESG ETFs, but the same disintegration in flows has happened in disruptive tech as performance hasn't really lived up to all the lofty promises that were made um, year to date. ETFs that we categorize as disruptive technology funds on ETFdatabase.com, they're uh, net negative inflows, not neg positive. So we're looking at about maybe segment outflows of about 100 million year to date. And, um, you know, I think to the core of it, uh, ARC's thesis is smart. Find the disruptors who are going to upend the status quo, invest with them with high conviction. But I'm not convinced that any asset manager, including ARC, uh, can pull this off successfully over the long term, even though they try. And that seems to have disillusioned investors on the whole premise. Okay, so on that note of the long term, should, should ARC be doing anything differently from a business perspective moving forward? And I, I know they have uh, filed for several crypto-related ETFs. Obviously, a spot Bitcoin ETF is part of that in uh, partnership with 21 shares. Uh, I know that they're trying to break into Europe, right? They acquired Rise ETF uh, not too long ago. I, I think regardless of performance, which obviously at the end of the day, performance is king. That's what investors want. But if if we just move away from that for a moment, I would say that there's no asset manager who is able to market themselves better than ARC. I think Kathy Wood, she still gets plenty of media attention. She's always on the major uh, financial news networks. They get plenty of media coverage. Um, they're, they're very active on social media. Marketing doesn't seem to be an issue. So, so my question is, should they be doing anything different to set themselves up for future success? Or do they simply need the market to come back to them? I think, you know, it's it's interesting you bring up the marketing because they are just masters of marketing. Uh, some of the stuff that they've been putting out about uh, how the declines in performance in their funds can be a, a valuable tax loss carry forward strategy. I mean, it's just brilliant. Like great, great marketing there. Um, not as relevant for ETF investors, but, uh, you know, great marketing. Um, I think you know, to answer your question, the the market does need to come back. And I think it will come back, right? Uh, you know, they, they have always been very high conviction in crypto. Um, they are, you know, the crypto ETFs uh, is, is a very smart expansion for them. They're in line 
for a Bitcoin ETF approval, uh, spot Bitcoin ETF approval, I should say. Um, last I checked, they'll probably be in that first group to be approved if and when it does get approved. Um, and when they that ETF launches, uh, they'd be able to secure the first mover status. And that could be powerful for them because as we all know, in a new market, whoever's first into the market in the ETF land usually wins. Um, but looking more deeply, I, I honestly wonder if ARC might need to do a little soul searching on the concept and definitions of disruptive tech. If you you know look, just open up their hood and look at ARKK for a second. This fund has 8% in Zoom, 8% in Roku, 5% in Roblox and DraftKings. Like these are the great disruptive picks um, of maybe five years ago, I guess. But markets are really quickly moving now. And I get that the, their idea, their concept is high conviction. But at some point, the disruptor is no longer the disruptor. It's the disrupted. So I, I think maybe getting back to brass tacks, getting back to that knitting that you were talking about, and and just, um, you know, kind of... Uh, getting, getting. I guess that's what I'm getting at. It's just getting back to to basics. Well, that's a really interesting point. Um, so, I mean, do you think that they have fallen behind on disruptive tech? I, I know a lot was made of them um, selling Nvidia prematurely before that went on a huge run earlier this year. Um, are, are Ark and Kathy Wood missing something here? Has the disruptive tech space overall? Uh, evolved? I, I guess that gets into how do you view the future of that category and, and ARC's positioning in it? It's a good question. And I think the proof is in uh, the performance, right? We were talking earlier about ARQ, uh, excuse me, ARCQ, and how that seemed to have missed out on the AI uh, wave. You know, if they, it, it, did it really uh, capture the disruptors in that space when it missed out on on the actual disruption? Um I think that uh, I like to think of disruptive technology as um, it's it's an investment concept that's extremely vague, uh, maybe a little too vague to be actionable, right? It's it's a little bit like a stone thrown into a pond that ripples the water. Few of us can ever see those stones coming, but if we're lucky, we can ride the ripples. And uh, I think we're riding one of those ripples right now with the entrance of large language models and artificial intelligence into uh, the market. You know, what company was the stone in this case? AI is impacting every company at every level in every sector at once. That's what it means to be a disruptive force, right? Um, so there, there are a few ETFs that are trying to capture these impacts. There's a few AI ETFs. Of course, I have to mention Robo Global Robotics and Automation Index ETF, which you know tracks a Vetify index. But it's also kind of an old timer in this market. Has a proven track record. Actually, uh, just crossed its 10 year anniversary late last month. And Robo, uh, the sticker Robo, is up 84% over the past 10 years. So, you know, done a, a pretty nice job uh, for itself. Another AI ETF I think is interesting is the State Street S&P Kensho New Economies Composite ETF, ticker KOMP, say that all in one breath, <laughs> I dare you. Um, it, it's got kind of a, a, a vague name, but it, what it does is it holds AI uh, robotics, uh, pro power processing stocks, and so on. But it also uses AI to pick the AI stocks uh, through this natural language processing algorithm that it has. Kensho has been doing this for years. They seem to be getting it right. Funds up 40% 40, uh, 40 since inception and had a really nice run um, right during when AI was uh, taking off earlier this year. So 
It's just such an interesting category. I think your point earlier was just it was really well said in that in the disruptive tech space, you have to move fast or, or you get yeah. disrupted. And that, need, that needs to be reflected in your ETF holdings. And I think the space is just going to – it moves so fast it's going to constantly evolve. Um, it'll be interesting to watch. And I, by the way, I should say as part of this entire discussion around ARC, I know ARC and Kathy Wood for years have been – um, polarizing. You, you have a camp of investors who, who who love them. You have a camp of investors who hate them, and probably everybody somewhere in between. But I, I do want to say, becoming even an eleven billion dollar asset manager, um, that's not easy. And I get some of the criticism thrown Ark's way, but we shouldn't lose sight of that fact. And again, I I, I get it if they're not your cup of tea, but not anyone can build an eleven billion dollar firm. I just think they're a fascinating. Um, story in the ETF space to to cover just because of the trajectory they've had over the past several years. And uh, again, they'll be interesting to watch moving forward. I don't know if you have any final words before we move on here. (laughs) I think you said it right. Like, as I said at the top, there are a lot of ETF issuers that would love to be where ARC is right now. And I think there's a a really important um, function that managers like ARC serve with those high conviction strategies, like that's what active management's all about. It's It shouldn't be just an excuse to closet index. Like you should have a conviction and, and really lean into it. Like props to them for um, sticking to their guns on that. So yeah, well said. Um, okay. Another story I do want to get your quick thoughts on is Fidelity filing for an ETF share class of their mutual funds last week. And again, as I mentioned at the top, this follows similar filings from PGIA and Dimensional. Um, All of them are seeking to use this for active ETFs. And Mm -hmm. so I'll just simply ask you, do you think the SEC is ultimately going to get comfortable with this? And then if so, how big of a deal could this be? So I'm so glad you you brought this up in our our pre-show discussion because this is actually one of the stories I'm watching very closely uh, through the remainder of the year. Um, you know, now that Vanguard's patent has expired, the doors are open for any asset manager to offer, uh, you know, to file to offer an ETF share class of their mutual funds. And um, I think you know what's really interesting is in the case of uh, FM investments, we actually saw the reverse, where there was this ETF issuer who wanted to file for a, a mutual fund share class of their funds. I just I think this is such a fascinating under the radar story because you can make a very compelling argument that the dual share class structure is how Vanguard became the second largest ETF issuer. This is their secret sauce to success. They were able to keep costs low tax impact low, they could operate in scale. It, it was really the the springboard that um, brought them um, to where they are in the ETF industry. What's so powerful about this dual share class model is that you can extend the tax benefits of ETFs to all investors in the same strategy, agnostic of vehicle, because you know it's the same stocks or same securities, same portfolio. So you can conceivably use the creation redemption mechanism in the ETF side to reduce the capital gains liability across all of the different share classes and benefit everybody. Um, And at the same time, you can prevent ETFs from um, cannibalizing uh, from the mutual fund and you open up uh, new markets to ETF, uh, ETF shares and so on. It's really a benefit 
to investors in the end because it offers more choices to them in more um, ways. And I'll get to that in a second. But um, you, when you look at who are the issuers that this structure, this dual class share structure could help the most, it's probably not the um, the legacy ETF issuers. It's probably going to help the people who have a lot of mutual funds in their in their bucket, uh, the big legacy fo- uh, shops like Dimensional and Fidelity. Um, so we'll probably see a lot more of these um, these uh, ETF share class filings from them. But like you said, here's the thing. The SEC has only ever approved dual share class structure for Vanguard's index funds, not their mutual funds. They actually said no. Uh, excuse me, uh, not their mutual funds, their active funds. Um, they said no to the active side. So, and most of these shops uh, making these filings now, they offer active mutual funds. That's what they're known for is active management. So I, I don't know, to answer your top of uh, the question you just asked, I don't know if the SEC is going to change its mind. It might be looking for um, indications that the uh, the in the active management strategy isn't necessarily one of those highfalutin, um, high conviction, uh, off the wall kind of active uh, strategies, but more of um, uh, a safer or, or more investor, uh, I, I don't know what the right word is besides safer, um, you know, kind of strategy like a dimensional, right? Um, but here's the interesting thing. I think if FM pulls it off from the other direction and gets approval f- to convert its ETF shares to mutual fund share class, uh, you know, d- manages to pull that off, I think we're going to see more ETF issuers uh, doing what FM is doing. And that's going to give access to their strategy and those mutual fund share classes. It's going to finally, finally let the ETF industry crack the uncrackable nut, which is the 401k market, which, as you know, mutual funds have a lock on. So if if they are able to get approval for that, oh, man, the floodgates are going to open, I think. So interesting. I actually visited with uh, FM's Alex Morris uh, maybe three or four weeks ago on this topic. And I think he feels like they have a pretty good chance of getting that through the SEC. The, the one comment I'll make uh, regarding the SEC, and you, you talked about obviously the index versus active, but Vanguard, they were even on the index side, that was approved a long time ago. Yeah. And I think the SEC, if if you were to you know ask them now, they'd probably say, maybe we shouldn't have done that. Um, or, or maybe they regret it a little bit because now they, I, I think they're going to have a lot of issuers coming at them and saying, hey, if, if you did this for Vanguard, even if it was index-based, um, you know, why can't we use this? Yeah, but you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. Once you do that, they might have the regrets, but, uh, you know, what's done is done and the precedent has been set. The so- interesting aspect here is this share class structure was excluded from the ETF rule, Rule 6C11, in- intentionally. And so that's why these issuers are having to file for exemptive relief. I I agree with you. It's my take. I think that the SEC should approve this. It needs to be well thought out and and make sure any issues are addressed regarding shareholder cross-subsidization. That's the SEC's main concern that, say, ETF shareholders are going to get hit with higher cost or some sort of negative tax impact from the, uh, the mutual fund side. And I, I think it's good that they're looking at that. But I think overall, the pros of the this share class structure outweigh the cons. Let, let me ask you this to your point on FM. So where do you, let's assume the SEC does get comfortable on, on both of these. What do you think has more upside? 
Um, is it the ETF side of the equation where you have legacy mutual fund issuers who are going to offer an ETF share class? And so do you see more assets going that way or the other way where you have existing ETF issuers who then want to offer their strategies as a mutual fund and retirement plans, which has bigger upside? I think you uh, may not be surprised. I certainly have an ETF bias. I've been covering the ETF space for a very long time. Um, but I, I do think it's the other way, right? I think it's uh, ETFs um, being able, ETF issuers being able to convert their uh, funds into mutual funds and, and offer that share class. Uh, um, you know, I, I think getting access to the 401k market um, is going to be profound for ETF issuers. All of this growth we've seen, $7 trillion plus in assets under management in ETF land, has happened without access to 401ks. Um, you know, it's, there's some technical reasons why, you know, technical structural reasons why ETFs have been difficult to use in a 401k format. Um, but if these issuers are able to take, uh, you know, the, the IVVs of the world, the low cost, uh, you know, VU and, and, and so on and so forth, take their very low cost, uh, very, you know, um, passive and, 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 and active. If they're able to take their funds and um, move it into the 401k um, market, I think that's just going to unlock so many more uh, dollars moving to these issuers uh, that j j just haven't had the access to. I am going to officially log that as an ETF Prime hot take. <laughs> I think that a lot of people would uh, would think that it'd be the other way around, that it's the ETF side of the equation. So I like that. That's one that we're going to have to come back and see how it goes if and when the SEC gets comfortable. Uh, Laura, just a few minutes left here. A few weeks ago, uh, I had your colleague Tom Lydon on the podcast, and I asked him for two or three ETF stories he's watching the remainder of the year. Uh, he mentioned alternative income ETFs like Jeppy, uh, and you know that's been a big story now for a couple of years. And, of course, all of the various clones there that we see coming to market. And then he also mentioned alternative strategies like uh, DBMF, the Managed Futures ETF. And so I'm just curious, as the calendar has now turned to November, um, I thought I would ask you the same. And, and clearly the ETF share class story that we just talked about is, is something that you're watching. Is there anything else, another couple of stories that you're most interested in tracking the remainder of the year, even into early 2024? Yeah, so there's there's a few, right? I I think uh, my colleague Tom uh, landed on something very smart, which is the the alternative income sources. Um, you know, there's there's we've seen a ton of those come to market and really yeah, gain prominence in 2023. They're obviously going to continue to be um, very important into 2024. Um, you know, I I think uh, I'm keeping my eye on. Treasury ETFs, uh, particularly short-term Treasury ETFs, uh, funds like USFR, right? I, I can't believe this floating note, uh, floating rate note ETF from Wisdom Tree has had such an incredible run over the past twelve months. It's brought in five billion dollars year to date, um, even with all of the rate uncertainty. So, rate uncertainty hasn't seemed to. Uh, deter investors or matter at all in one bit. It just keeps on hoovering in cash. And there's a lot of those um, those ultra short term treasury ETFs that have continued bringing in cash, even as folks, uh, you know, very smart folks in, in the, um, the market like 
research side and and uh, very smart market uh, experts say, well, you know, maybe you need to start extending duration, uh, or you should think about extending duration in portfolio. Um, they still take in so much money. So I, I'm just, I'm curious to see how much longer the investor enthusiasm for funds like USFR can continue on. Uh, that's something I'm keeping an eye on. And then just as a, a matter of curiosity, I think one of the really interesting under the radar stories has been in uranium miners. Um, something that has never really popped on my radar, uh, you know, maybe five or 10 years ago. Um, but we've seen kind of a run up in uranium uh, mining specifically as um, alternative energy uh, has gotten more investment and, and you know, climate emergency has been you know, just a dr- constant drumbeat of headlines about we need to do something about uh, the climate emergency right now. Um, and so people are turning back towards nuclear power as a solution um, to clean energy needs. And how does nuclear power work except with uranium? So the uranium miners um, are very, uh, you know, if, if we start using more nuclear power, we're going to need to get that uranium from somewhere. And so let's invest in uranium miners. So we've seen um, quite a f- quite a bit of money go into, I think there's one uranium miners ETF, two. There's a, a, a majors and then there's the minors play. Both of are offered by Sprott. Um, just keeping my eyes on that, seeing where that's going. I like that. That's a good off the uh, the radar area to look at. And I know uh, your commodity roots run <laughs> deep, right? It's <laughs> true. It's true. I do have a little bit of a bias there. <laughs> by, by the way, on USFR, the Wisdom Tree Floating Rate Note ETF, I agree. I'm surprised. I've talked about this a little bit um, th- this year, but... This really has not had the amount of attention and media coverage, even though it has hoovered up just an unbelievable amount of assets. It really is. That's also kind of an off-the-radar story um, that and investors have continued to gravitate towards that. I think, you know, it's probably a good hedge. If, if we think rates, you, you never know, uh, could keep going higher, not a bad place to, uh, to, to hide out. But, Laura, it's always so much fun chatting. Uh, excellent stuff, as always, this week. Thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me, Nate. That was Laura Krigger, Editor-in-Chief at Vetify.